As they're doing that, let me invite the rest of you to um, turn in your Bibles, if you brought one, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, as we continue through the book of John. And as you turn in there, um, if you haven't heard, we have an election this week. This time next week, you might be excited, you might be depressed, might be apathetic. So before we get to the text today, I want to remind you of something. I want everybody to take a deep breath, relax. It's not your world. It's not your world. Psalms 27 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All who live in it. So as we go through this week and things are tense, we do our civic duty, we vote, we pray, and then we sleep well to know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And not one thing happens, not one thing happens on this earth without the Lord's permission. Not one thing. So relax. Relax, you're not the Savior. Not one person is depending on you for salvation. There's not one person you can save in your own strength. Even the Messiah himself didn't have a Messiah complex. He just did what the Father told him to do. So God's not worried. He's not on the edge of his seat. He's not hoping for good or poor voter turnout. He's not fretting over it one bit. Last week we looked at John 3. Um, Jesus encounter uh, Nicodemus. And the famous passage, you must be born again. And the whole point is that the gospel is available for those who believe. Eternal life, not when you die, but when you meet Jesus is when eternal life begins. And the gospel is not just an idea or belief. It's the power of God unto salvation, Paul would remind us. Now, if you believe that, and I believe that, and we should believe that, then it radically changes the way we live. As we meet Jesus, a whole new way to live. And John, John the Baptist, who's going to be our focus again this week, we talked about him about a month ago specifically, and we see him again today. And we learn a few more things about John, and hopefully it's an example of what a life that is positioned to make much of Jesus. We see that up close. That song we just sang, and I love that. Doesn't feel do just a phenomenal job at picking out these songs. Um, I love them because every one of these we sang this morning just has Jesus as the focus of our affection. You have no rival. You have no equal. Yours is the kingdom. What a beautiful truth to sing. So let's start in um, verse 22 today. After this, it begins, after the conversation that Jesus had had with Nicodemus, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John, John the Baptist, also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and because people were coming to be baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, 
he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray as we've read your word aloud, I pray that it would stir our hearts. That we haven't gathered today just out of ritual, just out of tradition, but we have come to encounter the God of creation, the God of the Bible, the God who loved us to such an extent that he sent Jesus. And Jesus, it's our hope today that we would see you above all. See you and your supremacy. See you as you actually are. Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction? Would you bring redirection? Would you reorient our loves around the thing that is most lovely? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You kind of picks up, picked up quickly from the context, I, I'm, I'm sure, that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing near John and his disciples. If you remember, John was baptizing um, a baptism of repentance which was typical in the day when you had a major life change or life shift that you would be baptized to signify to all of those that are watching that there was a major change in your life. Everyone who was not a Jew, if they were to come to follow the God of the Bible, they would go through a ritual purification of baptism as a way to display that something was changing in their life. And this is certainly what's going on. But yet now we have John baptizing and Jesus baptizing. So this is the context. They're both baptizing pretty close to each other. And some of uh, John's disciples come up to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. There's a bit of a, a rivalry in their voice. There's a bit of an um, unsettledness, like what in the world is going on here? This idea of what are you going to do about this? You, you yourself are the one that gave him the platform, John. What are we going to do about this? And then, of course, John re- responds in this incredible humility. And I think that's the main point of this whole passage is this picture of humility. Verse 30 specifically He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm sure you've likely heard that phrase before, maybe seen it on a coffee mug. It might be on some kind of painting actually in your house right now. He must increase, he must increase, I must decrease. 
And it really is the theme of John's life. It's the theme of the Apostle Paul's life. It's ultimately this picture of humility is the theme of the life of Jesus. As he continually points to the Father again and again. This idea of humility is seen just embedded in all of those who greatly follow God. So I want to talk just briefly this morning on the three things that humility produces in our lives. Three things, and the last point is probably the heaviest point we're going to spend the most time in. But the three things from this text that we see, and certainly it produces more, but these three things we see in today's text. First, humility produces contentment instead of entitlement. Contentment instead of entitlement. When the disciples of John come and said, uh, John, hey man, Jesus has taken, taken our church, bro. Jesus has, Jesus has taken all of our people. Jesus has taken all the crowd. They're all leaving us and going over to him. We were the ones that were here first. And John answered in verse 27, I love this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Do you see the gratitude of the posture of John's heart? Hey, fellas, the ministry we had just a while back, that was given to us from God. As a matter of fact, everything we have is given to us from God. James reminded of this. We studied this just a few months ago. Every good thing that comes into your life, every good thing comes from the Father above. Every good thing. You can just start naming the good things. I had an incredible cup of coffee this morning. Isn't it amazing? Just coffee. I just, I just sit there and think, thank you, Lord, for good coffee. I wonder what coffee would taste like before the fall. It would be even that much better, right? Right? Every good thing. And so when you look at life that way, there's a sense of contentment instead of entitlement. The default mode of the sinful human race is entitlement. The belief that this gift or that experience that God placed in my life is rightfully mine. I earned it. I am owed it. But here's the deal. The more you think that you're entitled to something, the less you're going to be grateful for it. The bigger the sense of entitlement, the smaller the sense of gratitude. We wonder why in our world we keep getting more and more and more. And instead of being satisfied or content, we're less and less grateful for it. This is precisely why. My sinful mind can convince me that anything that I want, I'm entitled to. And if I'm not getting something I want, somebody in the universe must be messing something up. They owe me and they're going to pay for it. Think about this. James, again, we studied a few months ago, starts his chapter, his book off, his letter off, with consider pure joy when you enter trials of many kinds. Yet that is not our knee-jerk reaction, even as Christians. When things get difficult, when things hurt, when things are rough, when things we don't understand, what is our first response normally? Why, God, is this happening to me? I've been faithful in serving you, as if our service requires God to bless us in a certain way. No, that's an entitled spirit instead of a content spirit. Maybe I could ask us, how much money is enough? How big a house is big enough? How new a car is new enough? How much pleasure is enough? When will we be content with what God has placed in our hands? When will we be content with the place that God has planted us? And the thing, this idea of comparison that like creeps in through social media channels, through everywhere. It's just everywhere today. And it's comparing our life with the beautification or the fake life of someone else. 
Look at all we've done for God, John. His disciples seem to say, why does Jesus think that, he is, that he's worthy to baptize? Near, this is our turf. This is our turf, John. We should go tell him. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear witness with me that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's ministry was a ministry of a front runner to Christ, to point others to Christ, to set the stage for Christ. And because of that, because of that posture of his heart, because he knew who he was and the place that he was supposed to be, he was able to be content in this circumstance. Even later in prison, you see this in his own life. Entitlement is the false impression or feeling that I deserve more. It's a condition that one believes I essentially deserve something special or that someone owes me something, namely God. And the fruits of an entitled spirit are comparison and discontentment and disappointment and false expectations from others and specifically from God. The fruit of the entitled spirit is jealousy and envy and covetousness and on and on we could go. What John tells his disciples is so reassuring that this is no surprise because God sent him for this very thing. That people would turn away from him and go to Christ. He knew this was coming. God sent me for this, John says. This was God's plan all along. To gather a people together and then give them up. To rise like a star in the wilderness in which he did and then burn out like a meteorite. That's the plan. John knows it. And as it happens, look what it says. Look at his response. His response is not rivalry or competition or, man, oh, stink, man. This, this, this ministry stuff's hard. No, it says it produces joy in him. It says he rejoices in it. It leads to the next thing. Humility produces contentment instead of entitlement. It produces joy and not jealousy. John's losing his ministry. His disciples are leaving him. The crowds are dwindling. Remember, John came from a ministry family. He, his entire life had led up to this very moment. And yet he responds with joy and rejoicing instead of jealousy and regret. Only a supernatural humility can produce such a joy in us. And then John gives this illustration of the wedding. The one who has the bride, he says in verse 29, is the bridegroom or the groom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Therefore, you might underline this if you underline in your Bible, I love this. This joy of mind is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He gives us this little illustration about the wedding. <clears throat> in their day, I was reading a little bit about the Hebrew wedding, and I think we should bring some of it back. First, you know, I have two girls. First, in that day, um, the father of the bride didn't pay for the wedding. So we can just move that money into, into something else, right? 
As a matter of fact, that the groom or the groom's family had to give a, a dowry or a, or, you know, a sum of money, right, to the family of the bride so that, uh, as, as it was custom, I think we should bring that back too. Somebody wants to marry my girls, hey, that's fine, it's going to cost, you know, you have to be of good character, reputation, I'm going to have to like you, and I need $100,000, just, you know. Because I'm going to have to come visit my girls wherever you truck them around this nation, you know. I'm going to have to come visit. It's going to buy me an RV. I can get over there. Let's just bring that part back too. This part about the, the wedding, it was, the, it was in essence the best man as he's talking about the friend of the bridegroom or the friend of the groom. And he was the one that would help with the details of the actual ceremony. And the ceremony was, was, a, was a bit more um, entangled than it is today. It required the sacrifice of many animals and they would lay those on either side and the couple would basically walk through this bloody stream as as in 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 essence to show the union of each other and the danger of separation and we're not going to get into all that but he says listen the best man had done all the work preparing for this day he was there to support the groom he was there to aid in the groom's coming the whole point the whole all the work all the things all, all everything that he set up was there for the groom and the bride and so when he hears the voice of the groom he says that he rejoices the one who has the bride is the groom the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at his voice the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete it's a little warning here to us John even to his disciples hey buddy you're not the reason everybody's showing up today This whole event does not orient around the best man. This is not your day. And a warning to us. This is not our life. Everything we have has been given to us to God to steward and reflect his glory to a watching world. It's not about what we want. It's not about what makes us most comfortable. It's about something so much greater than that. And John understands that. It's not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of his own. Even less easy to rejoice at the sight. But John found his joy completed by the news which his disciples brought him. If you anticipate being the center of the universe, life is going to be really hard. We should be praying for your spouse. That that is just never going to go well. Because that's not why you're here. You're here to reflect the glory of God to the watching world. Humility brings contentment instead of entitlement, joy instead of jealousy. And finally, and we'll spend the rest of our time on this one this morning, a life centered around the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self. A life centered around the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self. You know the kingdom of self. That's that, hey, do what, do what feels right. Do, do what you want to do. Everything in the world orients around you. But instead, a life centered around the kingdom of God. Even as Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but thy will. 
Even as Jesus taught us to pray in the the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is a life centered around the kingdom of God. Yet we live in a culture, as one sociologist I read this week, we live in a culture of transcendental self-attention. Where everything we do is judged somehow by how is this going to affect me. Making everything in life about us. And this is the danger of pride. It pollutes everything else in life. And pride is sneaky because most of us think we got it under control. Pride's one of those things that's always a blind spot. I've rarely met a man or woman who says, you know what, I got a pride issue I need to work on. Now, pride might be the generic uh, sin of confession in your DG, in your discipleship group, because it's not so personal. Man, just pray for me. I got a little pride thing. But ultimately, we feel good about even confessing that, right? We're patting ourselves on the back. Pride looks down on others. Pride doesn't listen well. Pride is stubborn. It's not eager to learn because it's confident in what it already knows. Pride is not quick to admit wrong because it fears that it might lose position or look bad. Pride is insecure. It finds it hard to rejoice in the success of others. Friends, God hates a prideful spirit. This is not something that gets under his skin a little bit. God hates a proud spirit. Psalms 138.6, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Or man, what about John 4.6? God opposes the proud. Man, life is hard enough without God opposing you. Can you imagine? God is against you if you have a, a proud heart. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Listen, friends, you cannot enter the kingdom of God when you're trying to be the king of your own kingdom. That is not how it works. And this is why an example like John stands in such contrast with our modern culture. Where has the value of humility gone? Now, to be humble doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that you're being slothful or that you lack ambition. No, you look at, look at the life of John. He is bold. He leads with conviction. He does it in humility and making Christ the center of everything all at the same time. The real definition, working definition of humility is knowing your place. Just knowing your place. Knowing that you're not God. Knowing that you're not the center of the universe. Jeff Cook explains pride this way. Pride is an undue confidence in and attention to one's own skills, accomplishment, state, possessions, or position. Pride is rebellion against God because it attributes to oneself the honor, glory due to God alone. 
pride then is not possessing extraordinary talents, viewing my skills highly, or even showcasing my gifts for the benefit of others. No, pride instead spurs me to view myself as the only one in the entire world that really matters. To think that I have somehow earned the prime spot in the universe and now all creation is a grand symphony celebrating me. This is pride and it affects everything. It affects our walk with God, certainly as God opposed. It affects every marriage. Every marriage, every marital fight is pride reaching up somewhere in one of, in one of the two and saying, you know what, I deserve better. And I've rarely met a person, as I said, who readily admits to being prideful. And so I found this, I didn't write this list, so you, you don't have to hate me for it. But here's a couple tells. You know, people were playing poker and they're bluffing and they kind of have a tell. They scratch their ear, they fur their brow. This is, this is the tell in your own life. Maybe a test as I read these through that might diagnose the pride maybe that's even in your own heart. Waiting to turn the conversation to highlight something you've accomplished. Feeling a good report from someone else's life begins to threaten your own. For men, being particularly defensive about something pointed out to you by a woman. For women, being particularly defensive about something pointed out to you by a man. Not wanting to include someone because they just don't measure up. Hearing about another person's problems and feeling better about yourself because that has not happened to you. Hearing someone tell a story and waiting for your name to be mentioned or included in it. Trying to serve God without prayer. Thinking pride is not a big problem for yourself. Not confessing sin until you're backed into a corner and confronted. All of these points to a prideful heart. C.S. Lewis described it this way, pride, as long as you're a proud man or woman, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. Pride is Satanism in seed form, yet humility is the kingdom of God in seed form, and one of those will eventually grow in its fullness and take over your life. It's the one that you heed and give attention to. But it's through humility that we access all that God has for us. Look at John here. Again, the authority that he walks with. Baptism of repentance. The boldness. And he never lost that boldness. It would eventually cost him his life. The clarity of his calling, his contentment, his joy, all because of his posture of humility bringing his staff to the table in a sense and saying hey guys this is the reason I came I must decrease and he must increase so what do we do the key here is not to compare yourself to other people that's probably only going to swell your pride because you're doing so much better than they are or it's going to discourage you because those people are doing so much better than you are the key is not to compare yourself to other people and it's also not necessary to look inward as you hear this message you say man I'm going to go home and just try better to be humble 
No, the goal is to look upward. And this is what John does, and this is what he points our attention to even this morning. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above, you might circle or highlight this phrase, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, talking about himself. But he who comes from heaven is above all, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's given a bit of a prophecy about the ministry of Jesus. You see there, though, twice there in those first two verses, this phrase, above all, he's above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Whoever receives his testimony, verse 33, sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For God gives the Spirit, capital S, again speaking of the Holy Spirit, without measure. The culture that we live in is moving further and further post-Christian. Very little Christian values held in collection with the rest of the world. These elections, these ongoing election cycle just show that more and more the value of humility is removed from, from any main stage, I think, in, in culture. And we would be ridiculous to think that that, that does not invade, infect our own hearts. Pride slowly seeping in. And yet we claim to be the church, the very bride of Christ. And this is my hope for us, church. We have got to be, not just personally do we need to walk in humility. And I love, you read through the book of Ephesians, read through 1st, 2nd Peter. Humility is brought up all the time, and it's brought up as an imperative. Like humility is not something that um, that just happens to you, like growing old. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Humility is is an action that you take, that you, you take, you choose to take the knee, you choose to defer, you choose to create a culture of honor. And of course, there are things that happen to us, and there's people that we can rip down and slander, of course there are. We can show their ugly sides, we, but that's not what humility is. Humility says, I'm going to take the high road by going low. This is what we see John do in church. This is not something that, that we just hope to get right. No, this is an action that we have to take. We have to be the humble people. Because if we're not, there's not a message in the passage before this in John 3.16 that is going to be validated with our life. As a matter of fact, it's going to be invalidated by our life. One of the early church fathers, St. Benedict, Lived in the 5th century. I told the other guys earlier that I was going to share Benedict's ladder. And they like, that's not a real thing. It's a real thing. Let me tell it to you. St. Benedict lived in the 5th century. He was called the father of Western monasticism. And he wrote a guide to humility. Still popular today. I actually read this in Christianity Today many months ago. And the guide that he wrote is called Benedict's Rule. Which set forth this blueprint for the life of monks within his monasteries. And in that, he has the, his steps to humility or ladder to humility. 
And I think there are maybe 15 of them. I only included seven or eight here. And I'm going to walk through these. I think I actually have these on the screen. And they're probably too small for you to read if you're back far enough. But I want it all on there so you can kind of see them together. This is how we take steps because this is a step that we take today. Again, not the way that we feel. This is an action that we take to be humble, as Paul would say. One, fear of God and mindfulness of him. The returning of just the fear of God. Two, doing God's will, not your own or other people's. That before you would go to work every day, you would say that same prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. A posture of doing God's will. We see it in John the Baptist. Boys, this is why I came. To set the stage for Jesus Christ. Three, a willingness to subject ourselves to the direction of others. Four, patience to accept the difficulty of others. You've heard me say this, and I'll say it again. Sometimes Christians are the worst people in the world. They are hateful and spiteful. Maybe you've met some of them. Maybe you are some of them. You, you do community group, you do a small group with someone long enough, and you're going to think, man, at some level, this person's going to really wear on your nerves. But humility has this patience to accept the difficulty of others, that we don't all have to believe the same things in order for us to really do life together and for us to link arms and shine the spotlight on Jesus in all things. Five, radical honesty about your own weaknesses and faults. We have these smaller groups that we call discipleship groups that meet all the time, all over the city. And I found it takes about six or seven of these meetings before we kind of just break open the shell just enough where we feel like it's a safe place and we can be honest about our own weaknesses and faults. Radical honesty. Six, to be deeply aware of being the chief of sinners. If we're not careful, we get this pharisaical attitude. As Jesus would tell Simon at his house, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. In essence, saying, Simon, you love little because you're entitled. You think this is owed to you. This was the plot of the Apostle Paul, if you remember. He was a sinner, and he was a great sinner, eventually being the chief of all sinners. And this is what happens. The closer you walk with God, the more you're aware of all, all the ways you don't measure up. I remember being a senior in high school and thinking that I, I knew just about everything there was to know. Everything. Just arrogance. And then you get to college and realize you know nothing. Literally, you know nothing. As we walk with God, we're just aware of how far we fall short and how much we need grace. And then that word grace becomes such a beautiful thing. Number seven, in his steps of humility, speaking less. 
and eight. We'll stop with this one today. Transformation into the love of God. You know how this thing's supposed to work, right? That the church is the very hands and feet of Christ. That means, yes, you individually, but even us collectively as an organization. When people run into us or bump into us or work with us or encounter us in neighborhoods or networks or friendship circles, they're supposed to walk away thinking something is so radically different about those people. Because the Holy Spirit inside of us produces supernatural love. So that their response, Peter talks about, we should be ready to share about the hope that's within us. It would be so evident that a stranger would notice it in our first or second meeting. The love of God pouring forth out of our own hearts. And church, I want to call us as a church to humble ourselves before God. But more than that, collectively as families that we would humble ourselves before God. And then greater than that, just as a church, as a local body, that we would repent of our, the sin of pride. That instead of saying, as John the Baptist does, that I must decrease so he can increase, the mantra on our lips is I must increase and Jesus must decrease. And that's not how it should be. Friends, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I pray that we would begin rightly thinking about our standing. Dearly loved daughters and sons of the King of Kings, But God hasn't loved us because we were lovely. God hasn't loved us because we were beautiful. No, we're lovely because God loves us. We're we're beautiful because God loves us. Maybe our prayer would be, God, I want you to be lifted up in every area of my life. I want you to increase and me to decrease in my work all glory would go to you and my family you know, we would have the posture of gratitude and my finances that I would be a good steward of everything Father that you've entrusted me and my relationships I want to show humility 1 Peter 5 6 reminds us humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you John reminds us one more time here in chapter 3, this invitation of salvation. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. I'm going to pray for us. If you just take a, we're going to do communion a little later, we're going to sing in a minute first, but if you would just take some time, just right where you're at, maybe the little table right there in front of you would become your own little altar and you would just do some business with God again pride's one of these blind spots that we rarely see normally we only see it when either a good friend is able to see it and speak it into our own lives remind us of it I'm praying that doesn't necessarily have to come to that the Holy Spirit even now would begin to reveal the things in your own heart 
maybe you just ask him, Lord, what do I need to lay on the altar before you as a sacrifice? Is it my ego? Is it my confidence in my own skills, in my flesh? Is it a sense of entitlement or jealousy? certainly possible in a room like this if there's some of you who've never stepped across the line of faith and trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior I want to extend that invitation to you again I'll be in the back in just a moment if you want to pray with me some of the other prayer team will be back there church don't don't leave today without doing business with God without hearing his voice responding in obedience God do what you will in us today pray that our worship and our obedience would be such a sweet aroma to you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.